Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Um, all right, so to start, an easy question, uh, name and what you would say your title or occupation is. Okay, my name is Len Cabral, and I'm a professional storyteller. And you've been doing that since the mid-70s, yes? Yes, yeah, since uh, 1976. So that was, um, so you were in your mid-20s around then? Mm, yes, I was. I was in my mid-20s. Okay. Was there, was there anything that, that triggered that start of that storytelling um, path? Well, I was working in a daycare center, and I was in charge of 15 five-year-olds. That, that'll make you a storyteller. But I, uh, I was taking classes at a nearby college, Rhode Island College, in early childhood development and children's theater and creative drama. And uh, I was always interested in, in theater. And I got involved with a, uh, a children's theater company do a lot of re- reader's theater. And, and uh, I guess I was influenced by a lot of uh, TV programs that I saw when I was a young, young, young boy, too. Which programs? Well, um, there were different, uh, you know, uh, variety shows. There was Red Skelton. There was, um, oh, uh, Laugh-In. Um, then there were comedians that... Uh, that I was excited about, and they, like um, Jonathan Winters, and uh, there's Lenny Bruce, and Dick Gregory, and oh, um, la- later on it was uh, Richard Pryor, uh, Danny DeVito with the physical comics. But um, yeah, I guess it was a combination of a lot of uh, maybe some actors and stuff. People in my own family, a lot of, I come from a large family, so there's a lot of banter going on in the family. You, you mentioned uh, Red Skelton, and I rem- that name, I haven't heard it in years, but as a kid, my parents were, my parents used to have these, these albums that were kind of like a, it was like you would, they would play them and they were like a call and response kind of a thing. It, it was like you, you, you knew what you were supposed to say to what they were saying, and it was, <laughs> I remember as a kid just laughing so hard that my stomach would hurt. Um, and especially when I would like listen or watch Red Skelton, like it was just, my parents loved him and it was, I, I just, it was a great name. So I'm glad you brought yeah, that up. Yeah. He was, he, he did all those different characters of Clem Cadillopper and oh, yeah, Gertrude. And, yeah. uh, man, memories. Nice. I might have to call my mom after this and talk to her. All right, that was great. funny. 
Yeah. Um, so you you came from a big family. How many how many uh, siblings? Well, I get my, I I have three brothers, but I have lots of cousins and uncles, and um, so we'd get together for you know on Sunday afternoons at grandma's house, and it'd just be a lot of uh, banter. And especially as we got older, we became closer with all my cousins, and the banter with the uncles became a uh, part of the family, you know, fabric. Are they also into storytelling as much as you are? Uh, no, no. As I'm, I'm the storyteller, but they were all storytellers and characters in one way or another. Uh, can you give me an example? Well, uh, my father. Actually, my father was a good storyteller. He'd he'd tell a story, and uh, but there there were more um, things that happened on the job or when they were growing up, uh, working. Uh, as teenagers and uh, just, you know, uh, experiences that they've had. And then there was always, always, you know, when I was growing up, it was uh, children who were to be seen and not heard. And so if we were quiet enough, we could hear all these stories that really weren't meant for us. There'd be banter and gossip about this neighbor and that neighbor and funny things that happened that they didn't know that we kids were listening in on. I used to steal kind of my stuff mom. like that. Yeah, no, no. I, I used to steal my parents' uh, truly tasteless jokes books and just kind of sneak away in the corner. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. And the and the Red Fox albums. The Red, yes. <laughs> Those, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You, now you've so it seems like then your preferred audience, if you could choose one, is kids or the youth, I guess. Well, most of our work is in school, so it's from you know uh, K through twelve, um. And so I, I work, uh, that's most of my work. So yeah, most of my material is geared toward those uh, in elementary, middle school, and high school. Though at festivals around the country, it's mostly adults at these festivals. So we do have an opportunity to share stories to, uh, with adult, adult audiences. But the majority of my work is in uh, school settings. Is there something to your work that lends itself better to school settings than others? Uh, well, I think the um, the opportunity is there because there are more schools than adult venues for storytelling. And uh, since I, I focus on that more, I try to find the stories that are that be most helpful in a school setting for that age group, for different age groups. You know, with the use of... Uh, different types of stories with using repetition or participation, uh, be they folk tales or fairy tales, legends or myths from yeah, around I, the world. I, I just yeah. watched um, a video of you telling a story about a bear and a chipmunk um, mm -hmm. to, to kids, to a group of kids. And there was that call and response going on and they were so into it. And you would see, there was a, there was a time where they would kind of, slowly kind of as kids do sort of go off on their own tangent, but you would be able to bring them back around. And then it was a fun interaction that you had. Is that, is there an interaction that you prefer with kids more than you would with adults when, when storytelling? Yeah. Well with, uh, when telling to a young audience, I, I try to use a lot of participation and audience involvement because it's important for the audience, uh, for, for youngsters to be involved with the story, to participate. You know, we have so many things where they're just sitting back watching and not 
on it. When they're listening to a story and they're being asked to participate, they have an effect on that story. And that story, be, they, they work with that story, it becomes part of them, and they feel part of the story. And so it allows us to, uh, to uh, reach higher ground with them and to get them to, to a deeper engagement when they're listening to participate. Is I just uh, Patrick, one second. Let me let me. I just have one more quick follow up before I forget it. Um, because I want to talk about if if adults require that sort of um interaction with them as as kids would. Well, uh, there are stories that where you know adults are uh, participating, maybe not uh, as actively as a young audience would, because they're different stories. But I think all listening audiences participate in one way or another. Um, for example, if I said, if I began a story and I said, once, you know, the audience is going to know that, he's, oh, I'm probably going to say, once upon a time. So they're ahead of me with the story. I said, once there, once there was, or once long, you know, they're going to know, oh, this is going to be once long ago. So they're always a uh, word or two ahead of the story. And that's when sometimes the story changes up and that, that's where you have the aha moment. Yeah. Okay. Patrick? I, I was just going to say that, like, uh, we were talking about this earlier, but one of my favorite conversations I had with Len was about, before I started teaching, and he was talking about the, the lyricism of storytelling, something that I'd never considered, which I'd studied poetry and I've studied music making, but I'd never linked that in a, in a narrative form that having uh, tropes or ideas that you establish that the audience can return to. You said it like um, the way a chorus works, like you you have a chorus and everybody knows like yesterday from the Beatles and then, but then there's like new information. That's where you forget all the lyrics because it's the only time they say it, right? And then you get confused and, but it's okay because you're coming back to the thing you're familiar with. Yeah. And there's this one story that one tells that I remember from when I was a little kid, Wiley and the Hairy Man, and like my dad and I used. My dad thinks it's the funniest story. He has beetles. We had hunting dogs growing up, so it was like one of those. I, I just have these memories of being a little kid, and he and he will even if you say Wiley and the Hairy Man, he'll start chuckling. He's like Wiley and the Hairy Man. And my dad never really got into kid stuff, and that was like this powerful thing that I just still to this day I, I have a connection because he remember that refrain and it was just as important to him on well maybe in a different way I have no idea but as it was to me so it was like interesting how in the other speakers we've talked to the interviewees for this course and the podcast we haven't really talked about techniques that can be used to keep the audience Engaged, engaged mm -hmm. while you're also being mindful of introducing new information. How are you looping back to this yeah. other thing? So. Yeah, well, that, well the, uh, that is part of the repetition where, you know, uh, as, as you mentioned in a chorus, when, it's, when, it's, when that chorus comes back in the song, everybody joins in. And the same thing with the story where people are listening to a story and then here comes that refrain that's familiar to them and they can grab onto that and they're ready to go to the next journey of that story. So it's sort of like a, uh, a uh, safe ground, a safe spot uh, where the familiarity of, of the story kind of carries you on to the next part of that story. 
I have a question to follow mm -hmm. that up. In kids stuff, you tend to create almost a catchphrase. You're like bashing them over the head with it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just more like, oh, no, this is definitely the familiar part. Yeah. Like Wiley and the Harry Man. Yeah. Like you, you make sure that they know. Is it different for adults? Um, like, what is, how is it different? No, it's, well, uh, you, you don't need to, well, a lot of times that repetition is used with, with young audiences so that you can hold their attention span. With adults, you don't need that repetition as much because they're adults and hopefully they have an attention span. But with, uh, with young children, you want to be able to um, uh, keep them engaged with something familiar to them and also have them verbally participate, which helps them uh, stay with the story. With, uh, with adults, sometimes uh, it's a setup so that you can do a, a story within a story where the story kind of comes back and folds in on itself, and, and which creates the aha moment. It's when they go, oh, okay, because something happened at the beginning of the story all of a sudden comes back at the end of that story and kind of ties it together, but it's a surprise. It's, it was just a, almost like a throwaway line at the beginning of the story, and at the, toward the end of the story, you see where that throwaway line was really a strong part of the story. And, so and does that mean it's like the, so I always, you had me read that book by Christopher Booker. So I like, <laughs> it lent, lent me a book called the seven basic plots, or he told me to read it when I was starting to write. And it's a thousand pages. It's like, this big. <laughs> And it's some guy's doctoral dissertation about how all stories in the entire world are the seven same stories. And he proved this by trying to catalog as many stories as humanly possible. Wow. <laughs> and, and I read half of it. <laughs> when it got to the tragedy and comedy chapters, I had a hard time with that. But, um, one of the things that I was connecting to what you just said was like, so so you set up a conflict right like that conflict in the beginning leads us to understand where the solution will be but it almost is like we know where the solution will be but it's impossible to get there and then the interest in the story is like how you how, how that where that journey takes you yeah. yeah yeah and um and sometimes that that uh i guess that setup or that conflict which uh, appears to be a conflict at the beginning isn't really a, a conflict. It's the beginning of a uh, of a resolution to something else that that transpires in the story, that uh, where the twist comes in, where some stories, like I mentioned, fold in on themselves, and it's a uh, uh, causes the audience. Uh, um, I guess a way, a way to say that would be like a hot spot, you know, uh, especially w working with with youth. Um, say their attention span is maybe maybe uh, three minutes uh, because it's geared to commercials on television, how they set people up. And so every three minutes is some, a hot spot, something in the story that makes the kids go, oh, and then uh, goes on for another three minutes and then something else happens where they go, oh, and it perks their interest. And it's almost like a, uh, like a, a way to, they, they, okay, I've gassed up, I can listen for another three minutes. Ooh, I gassed up again, I can listen for another three minutes. And, and it lengthens their attention spans. And you get these, uh, these children who, 
whose attention span might be seven minutes, but because you tell a story in such an engaging way that they can stay with that story for 15 to 20 minutes because you've interdispersed hot spots every two or three minutes in the story where it, it perks your interest in something, or either it perks your interest or they go, ah, or ah, in that ah, or ha, 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 or ooh, that means they've gassed up. That's like a gas station where they've gassed up and they can listen for another two or three minutes because they were just, they just got rewarded for listening for three minutes. I listened for three minutes and something funny happened. I'm going to listen for another three minutes and, oh, something mysterious happened. I'm going to listen. And so it's sort of a reward for being engaged for two or three minutes at a time. It's like a Pavlovian response kind of a thing. <clears throat> I, I want to I try to bring it back towards, well, sort of in, back in the lane. I could talk about storytelling all day. I'm a writer as well. So I, okay. I bet, but at the same time, while I enjoy this, I want to kind of bring it back towards this project. Um, so how do, we, how do we then, since we're talking about how we engage, it, engage kids with this storytelling, if, if we can figure this out in this discussion, how do we do that with scientists? Like, is there, can you use these, these methods that you use with kids to engage a scientific audience? Hmm. Uh, I believe you can, but I, I think storytelling is, is such a powerful tool um, that with the right setup, that you can engage anybody. Um, because with, with storytelling, you know, you could engage people with words, but you can also, there's movement, there's uh, sound, there's facial expressions, there's body language using storytelling and it's uh so it's a powerful tool that i think can be used in in every field in any any field um yeah go ahead patrick say something too the uh, this one that we covered you watched that animation earlier too where one of the techniques in the course that we're advocating the students to do is this idea of narrative and using a narrative to introduce your work, as opposed to just being like, this is the research I did, and this is how long it took. Tony, one of Tony's thing is he's advocating you to frame your solution to a problem mm. in a narrative that the audience can relate to, so that when they get to your solution, they're like, oh, that's a good idea. As opposed yeah. to, you know, uh, just starting with telling them to research, which we think is important because we did all the work, right? Yeah. We're like, this is, this is what we had to pay attention to. But when you're trying to solve, like, say, public transit, and mm -hmm. your thing is a proposed solution to that, framing that in the story is a, is a good idea. Is there any, like, techniques other than the one that you saw in that animation that you would think of? Or Well, there was this... I guess this is part of a, a story. I heard the story years ago about there was a uh, professor who uh, always had a story about anything. A student would say something to him and say, oh, I got a story about that. Yeah, oh, I got a story about that. And one of the students said, professor, how many stories do you know? Every time someone asks you about a question about something, you said you have a story about that. And the professor said, well, I have a story about that. And he told this story about this a uh, young man who was sent off for military training. And he learned how to shoot the crossbow, the longbow, throw the javelin, and he really became an expert at the bow and arrow. And he 
finished his training and he's returning home and he's riding through the countryside on his horse and he stopped so his horse could get some water and he looked around and he saw on the side of a barn 50 bullseyes, targets with an arrow dead center in each one of them. He was amazed by this work and he wanted to find out who's, who's the marksman in this town. And he saw a young boy and he said, hey, whose work is this? Who's the marksman in your town? And the boy said, oh, that's Sam, the uh, town fool. Fool? You, you serious? Look, look, he's, he's a marksman. He's, look at all those bullseyes. And the, the boy said, oh, oh, Sam, first he makes the hole. Then he draws a circle around it. So that's how you solve a lot of these problems with uh, reaching out to people. That is going to be my philosophy for the rest of my life. So anytime, <laughs> anytime I make a mistake, I'm just going to draw like a circle around and be like bullseye. Circle around a dead center, bullseye. Yeah, I nailed it. Just exactly how I wanted to do it. <laughs> that's, that's and so that may be a way to, you know, to find some of the solutions. Yeah, you're looking at that. it differently. Like, so... And I don't mean to dissect it, but there's one, you have your protagonist that's looking at the problem through trying to solve it through traditional means. Mm -hmm. And he becomes impressed by the guy who actually solved the problem. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that scientists are often in the position of being the town fool, right? In that story, in that they have a new way of looking at something. But if they mm -hmm. told people, I'm going to put a hole in something and draw circles around it. Right. Yeah. They're going to be like, you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and also you know in many cultures we have the trickster where the trickster would also be do, do something unconventional but come up with the right answer yeah. just by luck or on a whim not not to go off on a tangent which is apparently going to be easy in this one um but every every culture has that um that loki right i mean every yes they've all got a a, a Oh yeah, right. Okay, all right, all right. Um, I want to bring it bring it to the uh, performance aspect of of things. Um, I do a lot of poetry reciting, and I've lately I've been working on <clears throat> the memorization of it without holding a book or whatever in front of me while I recite. But I don't know what to do with my hands. Like, I, do I put them in my pocket, hold them behind my back? And I've noticed when you do your storytelling, your hands are actually telling sort of a side story along with mm -hmm. this. Um, is, is it a conscious thing or is that something that you're aware of or is that something you picked up over time? Well, I, I've always used my hands uh, when, I, when, I, when I speak, but uh, when I'm in a performance, when I'm developing a story, uh, at times I will use my hands to, uh, you know, to uh, maybe make make that story a little clearer, or maybe use my hands so they don't have to use so many words. Uh, I was talking earlier this morning about uh, you know, working in schools, working with diverse audiences. You don't know the, the depth of your audience's vocabulary when you're working with children. So for example, if I said, uh, and the witch flew through the window and she sat down by her cauldron. Now some children may know what a cauldron is, uh, even, uh, but even children born in this country may not, because it's such an old word, may not have heard that word cauldron. So, um, if I 
use the word cauldron and at the same time move my hands to show a bowl, a half a bowl, a container. So a student who didn't know that word cauldron wouldn't be lost because they go, oh, a cauldron must be uh, some sort of container, a bowl, uh, a pot, something like that, just by moving my hands that way. Uh, now, keeping in mind that a little movement goes a long way, so, and too much movement is distracting, and I could see that would be distracting with, with too, much, uh, too much movement with poetry also. But uh, I use my hands. Um, there, there are certain t stories that I use my hands in the, to show something. Other times, I'm just reaching out to the audience with it, with my hands. You know, I don't have them in my pocket. I don't have them folded across my chest. It's uh, my, my hands are, my arms are open. So I, I look at storytelling as I'm spreading my arms out and pulling everybody close. You know, like uh, traditional theater has that fourth wall where we separate the audience from the stage. With storytelling, it's, you know, it's almost like pulling that audience onto the stage. It's open. And so my hands are open, and uh, so I try to use encouragement when I'm, especially when I'm asking people to participate. You know, I'm 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 waving them on, you know, luring them into the story, using my hands to lure them in. So also do this thing where you so you just describe making describing a visual yes and then you also describe gestures that make you human to them and like more inviting in mm -hmm. then there's this other one i noticed you do where you make noises that amplify something in the story so yes like, i saw you like tap your arm mm -hmm. um but you do it how do you choose which story which which things to make audible with sound effects? Well, you know, I guess it comes with practice in rehearsing that story. When I'm in my studio uh, working on a new story, you know, I'm pacing, I'm using different voices, I use different techniques to help me to uh, capture that story in my mind. So I might sing that story, or I might do the whole story in mime. It's just a f uh, what I call physicalizing the story. So uh, when I'm telling the story, uh, if if when I'm telling a story, and say a bell rings or the door slams, and I lose my my chain of thought uh, because I got distracted, I can check out where I am physically, and I'll know what story I'm telling. I'll know where I am in a story. I can look at photographs that people have taken of me telling stories over the years, and I and I can say, well, I know I was telling such and such a story. It's because I guess. What I, how I learn the story is is physically as well as verbally, and so um, I can I can check myself on if I'm speaking too fast, if uh, I need to slow the story down. So it's um, the movement is a, for me the movement is a big part of the story because it connects me to to the story, and it also helps me if I should lose get distracted by a. Like I said, a slamming door or a bell ringing. When you're working in schools, you may have the fire alarm going off. You get, you know, the intercom coming on, and so there's a lot of chances where you could uh, lose your chain of thought. But because I've I've learned the story physically, 
uh, I can always, you know, bring it back to myself. So, so basically, you need to act out the test yeah. <laughs> in order to start memorizing for the next for yeah. their, their textbook. Do you have any? It's not just for performance. Hmm. No, a lot of these, a lot of the people listening don't have that um, training, you know. So, uh, do you have any techniques that? for a story that may not have that physical or may not lend itself well to that physical um, aspect of, of storytelling. Do you have any sort of techniques that can help them stay focused and sort of stay on track? Well, I, uh, one thing that uh, I suggest is reading aloud. You know, and uh, a lot of people don't, don't read aloud. I, I love to read aloud. I love to have people read aloud, but reading aloud, you know, finding a story that you want to, uh, you want to be able to share but reading that story aloud helps you find the rhythm of the story and your pacing and how it works with you. And so uh, by reading aloud, for me, uh, I can remember, I'm, I, if I hear things, I remember them better than if I read them. So by me reading aloud, the, my voice leaves me and comes back to me and I can lock it in. And so I'm a strong proponent about reading aloud um, and uh, you know, I, I, when I worked in a daycare center, I would read aloud to the, to the children uh, until I get tired of those books or they get tired of me reading. And then I started telling them stories. But I think reading aloud helps one find your voice, find the rhythm of your voice and the rhythm of that particular story. And it also allows you to um, play with that story as reading aloud, realizing, you know, this doesn't have to be said in that story because... Uh, when things are being read, you might need more words. But when things are being spoken, because you can use your facial expressions and your body movement, that you don't need as many words as you would use if you were just reading from text, from a text. And I, th I think, uh, uh, you know, you know, this is as a poet, you know, just practicing that, that the, finding the rhythm of, the, of a poem that you write, and not all poems are read the same way, just as not all stories are told in the same pace, but finding a, a correct pace for that story. And it's hard. There's, there's one that I've been, one of mine that I wrote that I really wanted to memorize that I've been practicing, and I noticed that when I read it in my head, um, I, it, it comes off at a certain pace, but when I read it out loud, it, it's almost mm -hmm. like there's more feeling and emotion to it. And there's some, yeah. some words where I kind of elongate them out a little bit just to give it yes. that emphasis, you know? So, yes, yeah. yeah. So you, you learn and you hear it and you're like, Oh, I got to do that next time. Like I liked how that yeah. sounded. That, that's it. The sound and um, like it, it just, and, and that's what I, I look for the, the rhythm in the, each, each word. You know, sometimes you elongate a word and you get a response, different response from an audience. Uh, and then reading aloud also, you know, pacing that's taking a beat between uh, a verse, um, you know, giving the audience time to catch up to that story or, or that, that phrase that you just used. There are, there's some, you know, I've come across some powerful phrases in, in folklore and some that I just love to hear uh, uh, let the audience really hear them. For one, I was thinking this morning, driving up here, I was in traffic and I was reciting a story that I know. And there's this line in the story where uh, this person uh, is sent into the forest and um, before long she found she lost her way. 
And to have the word found and lost in the same sentence, she found, she lost her way. It was, oh, wow, yeah. Or another line was, uh, by making herself invisible, she disappeared. No. And you just kind of want to take a beat there, let the audience go, wow. You know, it's like in, in some uh, tales, people say, yeah, that person uh, turned up dead. <laughs> you think about that, turned up dead, okay. Yeah, but you know, but taking a beat there, where you, you you could read that and just read right over it. But if you verbalize it and you realize that, wow, the play on words is like a Carl Sandberg play on words uh, to take that beat, that time with it. So I think it's very important to read aloud and to hear your voice, and uh, and that'll tell you the you know finding the rhythm of the of the story. Are there, are there like um sort of posts in stories that you tell that sort of help you remember which direction to go with the story. So for example, when I recite poetry or even in poetry in general, there are some words that they don't rhyme, but they kind of allow you to they sort of help you take that step forward, um, propel you forward. And there's, there's a, a wordplay with that. Can you do that with folk telling or folk storytelling and, and, and things like that? Yeah. You mean like, um, uh, uh, if I mean uh, uh, like a wordplay, for example, uh, um, no, let's see. Now I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. It's like you know how you're trying to memorize the names of the planets, and there's that um, that my my very what I can't my very oh. educated mother, whatever it is, um, you know, Mars, Venus, uh, Earth. Yeah. Um, is there something like that you can do with with um, storytelling, or because well, again, I'm sure a there lot of these. You know, a lot of these people aren't don't have that experience or practice doing it, and I don't think they're going to spend too much time taking classes yeah. on storytelling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, uh, I, I know what you mean about the, uh, the the trying to memorize the planets and stuff, but I I don't know. Uh, I guess people could discover certain ways to help memorize. Uh, their stories, a story if they're having a problem with memorizing it or keeping keeping things in uh, in order, the, the sequence. Uh, but I think it just comes with practice, um, trying to, you know, uh, find that rhythm. And uh, there's certain things that, that I do that I, I may use in different stories that, you know, a uh, combination of different words that I would use in different stories, just as a, a way of um, uh, showing time in a story, you know. Um, but I'm not sure if that answers your, your question there. No, it does. It does. It, it's, it's just a matter of, of practicing and re repetition and just mm -hmm. saying it out loud mm -hmm. and, and kind of hearing yeah. it along with, you know, trying to think of what you're saying. So. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, like I mentioned, when, uh, when, when, uh, when I use words and it, it leaves me, it comes back to me, it kind of locks it in. And so I, and I got a pretty, pretty decent memory. Uh, and so I can kind of recall things and it, it, a lot of these things, uh, fall back in, uh, fall back into place when I'm telling a story. And once in a while I'll, I'll have, I'll have some stories that, Maybe begin the same way, and so I'll I'll, I'll intend to tell, I'll intend to tell one story, but it begins in such a way that 
it could be this other story that I, that I tell also, and I'll have to catch myself. And sometimes I don't. <laughs> How do you recover? Like if, if you're on the spot, like it, is there is there a graceful way of recovering? Well, oh yeah, there's graceful ways. Is the the wonderful thing about telling a story is uh, you're the only one who knows what you're going to say next. You know, uh, so whatever you say is right. If there's a part of the story where you uh, forgot to mention something in the in the beginning of the story, but uh, as you go on, you remember that you have to decide: is that part that I forgot necessary in the story? It, uh, if it's not, okay, forget about it. If it is, that's where the creativeness comes in. How can I weave this part that I forgot it to interject at the beginning of the story? How can I weave it into the story so that it's seamless? Or you could say what they didn't know was, and then add that part into it. Or you could just, you know, figure out a way. Here's a space where I can slip that part into the story. And then you might realize, you know, the story worked better with me interjecting that part of the story. In, instead of the beginning of the story, it worked better uh, at the end or in the middle where I put it in out of necessity. Okay. okay. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm curious if, if when practicing and you make a mistake, do you sort of roll with it to see if you can keep creative or or do you try to go back and make it th and recite it the right way well if it, it all depends if uh i'm working on a, a new story i'll i would go back because I, the first time i, I you know i want to get that story down uh you know uh smoothly hmm. the way that you know I, i've intended to do it and then after i get that down then i could change it up a bit the other thing is with stories you know when you mentioned uh, people who are beginning storytelling uh is it's better to have a tight three-minute story than a loose seven-minute story so when you maybe the first you might have a story and the first time you tell that story it's uh it's five minutes you know but you've you've, you've worked on it it's an eight-minute story, but you were nervous, and when you first told it, you you whipped right through it and became five minutes, and you go, oh my gosh! But you know it was an eight-minute story, but it's better to have that to have a story that's five minutes, that's really solid, and then you can start to embellish that story and make that story an eight, a ten, or twelve-minute story, instead of having a story that kind of goes on and it's just not enough to carry it and your audience get loses interest in it. I always say it's, be, it's better for a story to be short and build it from there. Make it a powder packed five minute story. And then once you, you got that under your belt, then you can start embellishing it here, embellishing it there, embellish changing here. And before you know it, you got a, a very interesting, engaging 12 minute story or 15 minute story but not to try to start out with a 12 or 10 minute story that is, is sort of weak. Is, is there, is there anything you've learned in your years of storytelling that you kind of wish you knew um, before? Well, uh, I'm always learning things about stories. Uh, uh, stories that I've, that I've been telling for quite a, quite a number of years. Uh, now that they're, they're, they're different to me now, I, I start to understand them 
differently. Uh, and I see where I can use them to um, maybe address some of the environmental issues or some of the social issues. Whereas before, I just looked, it took them as a story. But now I realize, you know, just by tweaking the story, I could address uh, bullying. Or by tweaking the story, or it's always there. Because, I mean, people have told folk tales and people have told stories since the beginning of time. You know, before people could talk, they, they, you know, they drew pictures on walls. But, but people, so all our ancestors, our great ancestors told stories. And people still tell stories and still tell folk tales, which means the folk tales must be important because these stories have been told for eons. So they must be important. And we're just telling them to a new audience. So we have to find ways to engage that audience because these stories are carrying messages in there. And so we can uh, probably uh, deal with a lot of uh, issues and find solutions to a lot of the problems that we have in today's world through folklore and folktales. Uh, if they're told right and we are patient with them, we could figure out this is the type of story to be told at this particular time. Because if storytelling and stories weren't powerful and needed, they, people wouldn't be telling stories. But people have I've always told stories. I also feel like um, that, like, I was in uh, uh, Sevilla in Spain, and I went into this big cathedral. It was the most beautiful place I'd ever been to. And it had all these, um, that at one point, they realized they weren't getting enough parishioners in. So they knocked out a, a ceiling so that more light would come in because the light was preventing people from getting in. But then they were like, oh, that's kind of ugly. So what the the brothers, these bro this four generations of brothers created these. Uh, so 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings when church happens, the sun would shine in through this skylight. And they built all these sculptures of angels, uh, like reaching into heaven. So when you were being blinded by the sun, it looked like there was all these people oh, climbing uh, into uh, the sky. And the guy who was given the tour was, at this point, the, the reason why all this art took generations to do and why it was so important to people was because you have to remember people didn't read and write back then. So the mm. pictures and the way you could visualize the stories in the Bible was like half of the attraction mm -hmm. to, the, to getting people to come in. Yeah. And it like kind of blew my mind because I realized like we take for granted that in the last 100 years, we basically solved literacy issues. Yeah. Like most people can read and write. But 100 years ago, that wasn't true. In fact, 200 years ago even, probably people mostly heard news through stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and, and, and we didn't even have technology 200 years ago, so yeah. or, or electricity. So like, it's interesting to me that scientists uh, wouldn't see and study storytelling as yeah. a way of communication because it's way more ingrained in us to mm -hmm. hear stories that way than it is for us to read it. Yeah, right. Well, we got the the griots, we got the the, the court gestures, you know, the raconteurs, we got. You know, um, I mean, was it was a Socrates who thought if people started reading, it would uh, only the um, elite would would read, and people wouldn't uh, 
wouldn't wouldn't share knowledge. So, well, that, right, so, Homer yeah. and the Odyssey and all that was was a oral, yeah, the, right? And it was, and people often are like, "Why didn't they write down more things?" And we're like, "Well, that wasn't how they yeah. passed on information." That's right. Population they never was thought reading. it would be important to have mm-hmm. it written down. Yeah, I think Native Americans were the same way, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Native Americans, they they were very oral more than written. Yeah, sure. Well, many cultures were, uh, and and many cultures still are oral. And uh, not so much written language. Uh, you know, and the people collected stories, thank God. People collected stories and um, shared them. But they were handed down before, long before they were written. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's your favorite character in Vikings, Patrick Athelstan. He's yeah. Writing mm-hmm. it all down. So. <laughs> um, well, and like, I mean, I just, part of me thinks about like a lot, like, how much do we we don't understand why stories are so important like i I think it's hard to quantify Mm -hmm. christopher booker's doctoral thesis dissertation the seven basic plots kind of proved that it's hard to synthesize why stories are important but we do know i think every scientist almost i would defy somebody to not tell me a story that they resonate with in popular fiction or Mm -hmm. in, in music or in art and it probably informs a lot of like why they practice the work that they do because yeah. it reflects a lot. Of yeah. that. Um, and it's interesting because I wonder how hard it is sometimes. And I study the metacognitive like mm. aspect of storytelling <laughs> and it is really hard to like write an original story. Mm. Um, yeah. Why is that? Why is it so hard? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> Patrick, you only got through half of that book. There's maybe your answer is in the second half of that book. What? The well, I mean, there's seven story types, right? So maybe that's why it's so hard is because there's it all boils down to those seven. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I I do know that over the years I've been able to recognize like good stories. Mm-hmm good really good writing i'm just watching yeah. fargo season one again and yeah. what they've the, the creator did on that show is phenomenal and i have the pitch document of how he outlined it and got a green lit for production yeah. and it's a beautiful four-page document but even without the show yeah. it's just a beautiful <laughs> four-page because the characters like jump off the yeah. page and i'm just like I mean, is it hard? Do you find it hard to like? Yeah, I, write? I, f- I find it hard. I find it, uh, you know, I I read a lot to get ideas for stories. I uh, also have started many stories, uh, which are on my desk and halfway through them, uh, and trying to figure out an ending for a story. Sometimes I'll come up with a what I think was a pretty good beginning of a story, but then I kind of run out of steam with it. Um, because I think to write, you need to write. You need to have time to be in one place to write. And uh, with my schedule, I'm, you know, sort of helter skelter, and I don't. But and you need to be disciplined, uh, probably more disciplined than I am. Um, but I think it takes um, time and space to really follow through with, with, with the ideas. And my, my problem is sometimes I'll have I, I, ideas, but I don't have the time. 
because you know I'm, I got to drive here and I got to do I got to perform here, and then when I have the time, I don't have the ideas or the creativity, and so yeah. trying to coordinate that creative energy with open space is a chore in itself. Um, but I'm always looking for that that time to to have and and hoping that I'd be creative during that time. Adam, did we want to do anything where we, uh, is there any way we can get a story onto the podcast? Yeah, I was, I, well, I was about to ask. I haven't brought it up with one yet, so I'm kind of putting him on the spot right now. But yeah, I was, well, was going to ask at the end, you know, one of the last things that we could do is see if there's a maybe a three to five minute um, story that's, yeah, either either I don't know if it's do relative to communication now, or, or... We pull one up off of like the audio from something else you've done. Or... Yeah. Um well let's see if uh I mean, you already did a couple good stories just yeah. anecdotally, but <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, well, I I could think about it. Um uh, Andrew, you're, you're a poet. You write poetry. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I write some poems too. Oh, do you? I got a do you have any? Yeah. Do you have I got a poem published? I can tell you. <laughs> um, no, I don't have any any poems. Uh, any poems published? No. Uh, poetry is it's it's a hard thing to get people to read. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> What's crazy is that the, the the poetry is read, but it's read by other poets, and it's hard yeah. to get it out there to the masses. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know. You know, a lot, there's been a lot of spoken word events and trying to get people to uh, come out to listen to poetry. But a lot of those people who come out to listen to poetry are poets themselves, and. Um, right. <laughs> it's hard to just get you know the, the the random lay person to be like hey let's go check out poetry it's like oh it's a yeah. tuesday night you know let's go hear some poetry nobody does that it's not the 60s anymore you know so. yeah it's a sad yeah yeah um well uh i could tell you this story here it's just it's a tale from uh, these uh two boys uh in the from in kenya they were walking to school one morning, you know. They had their backpacks on. They're walking to school, talking stuff. Hey, what are you going to do tonight? Oh, I'm going to play some basketball tonight. How about you? Oh, I got a new camera. I'm going to make a film. Oh, yeah. You're going to get together listen to some music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as they walk, one boy looks and goes, uh-oh, look. Look over there. And he looks across the field, and there was a cheetah. Now, you know, cheetahs, they run like the wind, right? Nothing faster than a cheetah. They said, oh, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? That cheetah was looking at breakfast. Those two boys said, oh, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And one boy's friend sat down on the ground, kicked off his shoes, reached into his backpack, took off a brand new pair of Nikes, started putting his Nikes on. His friend said, what are you putting your Nikes on for? You can't run faster than that cheetah. The boy said, I don't have to run faster than that cheetah. I just have to run faster than you. Woo! And off he went. Oh, I hope you don't have friends like that. Uh-uh-uh. I hope you don't have friends like that. You got friends like that, Andrew? <laughs> I, I, I've had a friend like that. <laughs> I'm glad you said had. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> past tense. That was, the, uh, that was how we dealt with. Because we're talking about how in San Diego, 
they don't have different they have different critters in the wilderness uh, than they do in New England. That all I had to worry about when I was a kid was bears and, and deer, and deer weren't really a problem. It was just the bears, yeah. but they weren't really that much of a problem as long as you had a friend that was slower than you. So that was always the friend that was slower. <laughs> That's how I made friends. Uh, that's why I moved to California. <laughs> but they get mountain lions out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I live near I live near a canyon, and there are stories every week about people walking their small dog at dusk, and these coyotes will just come out of the canyon and just snatch the dog and run away. Like it's it's insane. It's Ooh. scary that I live like yeah. you know seven blocks away from this, um, <laughs> and they hang out there all all night. Like that's where they live. Uh, just waiting for dinner. Yeah. That's it. Well, you know, everybody's got to eat, I guess. So you know, just, <laughs> even if it's a chihuahua or whatever it may be. Yeah. So, all right, Patrick. They got, they got the scary ones, though. They got like spiders and yeah. snakes. Those are the ones that the mountain lions don't scare me because they don't usually go around people. It's very yeah. rare that mountain lions scare yeah. people. But the snakes and the spiders, man. Uh, snakes, yeah. yeah, no, you can you can scare away a mountain lion. Um, the the yeah. idea is to just get big and loud. And it, it, mm. when I go hiking out in the mountains, I'll I'll pick up a handful of, of rocks and just kind of hold on to them as I'm walking because that's how you you get big, loud, and <clears throat> you know the the rule is that um, if you think the mountain lion hasn't seen you first, you're wrong. So you want to make sure that you're mm. just you know ready for that. Um, but with snakes and spiders, they well, especially they take the, the kids. Um, when I was, we were, my school was in the desert. So the, the baby rattlesnakes were the ones you had to be afraid of because they didn't know how to, pr- like their venom is a growing. So they have a lot more of it. Yeah. It's a lot more potent and they don't know when not to use it yet. Oh, so like the big ones aren't going to come anywhere near people. The baby <laughs> ones are like, Crazy. I'm in the spider. I've never seen spiders that are, that are more scary than the ones I've seen in California. Yeah. Big black ones. Oh, and Jesus. Like, they have this one. You remember this? The brown recluse that would bite you and I've it been, would like. I've been bitten by one before. Really? Uh, yeah, back, oh, but I was back in Maryland. Your skin to disintegrate? I don't think so. No, I. So when I was um, living back in Maryland, I was bit by a brown recluse right on my wrist, right here, and. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just like a regular bug bite. But later on that night, when I was out with friends, we noticed that there was a, a streak of something that was moving up my arm and it had stopped like right about here. Um, <clears throat> and my friends were like, we have to go to a hospital immediately because there was, that was poison traveling towards wow. my heart, you know? So yeah. like, cause that's the quickest route right that way. So like when I had to get a shot and it was the worst, one of the worst experiences of my life. And, um, but yeah, so I'm I'm familiar with that spider. Uh, I never saw it, but the results have been I'm, I'm yeah. That's a fun topic. Yeah, that was a long tangent. Good story. I've got a story yeah. for that. I've got. A, I've, I've, I've I've told that. I've got. I've practiced that story actually of that visit to the hospital with that shot. Um, yeah, yeah. It was it was a rough experience, but anyway. Um, Patrick, I I don't have any more questions unless you do. Um, I don't think I do either. I was going to ask you about ethics, though, because earlier we were talking about 
you, you mentioned about the environment yeah. in, in different ways. And, and, and I don't think you've talked too much about it in this podcast, but like how you choose the characters. You talked about how when you go to a school, you go to the library. Mm-hmm. So we're doing an episode on ethics. And I'm really interested in ethics of communication. Like how do you choose the pieces mm-hmm. of the narrative that you're introducing? And like how that plays a role. Like when, how do you choose what things to put into a story that give a sense of the world that you're trying to convey? Mm-hmm. But when does some of that, um, I don't want to call it political correctness, more like those conscious elements. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for example, uh, uh, I, there's a, a folktale that comes from West Africa called Anansi and Common Sense. And it's about how Anansi went out and he collected all the common sense from everybody in the world and he had it all for himself. So what I will do as I'm telling that, before I tell that, as I'm telling that story, I'd say, so Anansi, I'd, I'd say, uh, wait, we'll tell you a story but uh, about common sense. I'm going to give an example of what good common sense is. And I'd say, uh, should always wear your seatbelt, right? And the kids go, yeah. And should always look both ways for your question. Yes. I said, okay, who can give me another example of common sense? Kids will raise their hands and they'll say, don't go for a ride with a stranger. I say, okay. Another kid will say, don't smoke. I said, all right. And uh, don't... Uh, uh, don't uh, pick on somebody. Don't be a bully. And I said, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And they'll be sh- throwing these things at me. And then uh, and and then I'll finish up and I'll say, oh, ooh, ooh. Uh, I, I've got one. I've got one. My cousin told me about this and she's a doctor. She said, if you can't remember the last time you wash your hands, it's time to wash your hands. And the, and the teachers go, ooh, and the kids go, ooh, and it's so true. And so I, I say it that, that way, and I also say, and it's true, my cousin is a doctor, but I want to say my cousin, is, she's a doctor. So first of all, there's a, a, someone who's of color whose cousin is a doctor, and she is a woman for those little girls in the room uh, and boys in a room who look like me can go, Oh, she's a doctor. She's a doc, you know? And then the comment, the powerful thing about if you can't remember, you wash, if you can't remember the last time you wash your hands, it's time to wash your hands. Very simple. And so it's stories like that, that I'll maybe as a segue between stories, I would tell, I would ask a question about, um, uh, something about maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, you know, when I was little, my mom said to me, I came home one day from school and um, I was feeling kind of blue about something. And she said to me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And kids would say, oh, I heard that before. I said, how many of you? And I said, let's say a lot together. So I get 200 kids saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And I said, that, that's what my mom said to me. And I felt pretty good that day when she told me that. But then I get older like you boys and girls, I started reading. I realized my mom was right. Sticks and stones will break your bones. No doubt about that. But you know what? They'll say what? Bones heal. And bruises, they go away after five minutes. But hurtful words go right in the air, and they hurt for a lot longer than a broken bone or a bruise. And that's why our parents and our grandparents say, "Uh uh-uh, don't tease people. 
Don't make fun of somebody because you don't know their struggles. You don't know what they're. And then I'll go on and tell the story. And the deceit about, you know, when they see that, ooh, it hurts, you know, sticks and stones, but words really hurt. And the kids really, they understand that because a lot of these kids I'm talk, telling stories to, they got hurt because somebody called them fat, somebody called them stupid, somebody called them slow, uh, you know. Somebody said, you can't play, you can't sing, you can't dance. And it hurt their feelings, and it goes right in there. So just to verbalize, to have an adult verbalize that, that, it, that kids would realize, yeah, I shouldn't call little Joey shorty or something like that, or I, I should, yeah. Cause, and I say, because you don't want to hurt somebody like that because so many adults are walking around because they get hurt on the inside. And, so, and then the kids go, oh. And it's just something that they've heard before. They've heard that expression, six and stones, but here's a new, a new twist on it for them. And so that, that way I can, you know, make a little difference in their lives, especially the kid who's getting picked on, and hopefully the kid who's doing the picking on. Well, I think what's interesting about what you're saying that comes back to like an ethical implication for communicators um, is, and you can tell me if I'm right or not, but what I'm getting from it is that no matter what, the details of how you're constructing a message to an audience is going to say volumes about your view of the world. Yeah. Whether or not you want to think about it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you say scientist and you have a white male scientist on the slide deck, yeah, that says something about what you believe about science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if you're like, well, that's not important. Well, it also says something that you don't think it's important. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and once again, it's your, you know, what audience are you in front of and what are you trying to, uh, what are you trying to convey? And I don't, I take storytelling very seriously and when I'm invited to a school, I have the opportunity to do a, you know, a professional job of storytelling, but I also have the opportunity to share what I'm coming from. And uh, I'm not you know, telling kids to do one thing or the other, but this is be kind. I want everybody to be kind. So there's nothing wrong with that. Be kind. Um, Interview your grandparents, you know. Uh, put away your, uh, your 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 little computer game and and listen to your your mother talk, uh, your dad, or ask questions of your aunts, and listen to stories and tell stories and uh, encourage them to be more connected with their environment, with their with the elders in their family. And I tell them, I say, you know, your your grandparents aren't going to always be here questions so now it's time to ask them questions especially now that kids have all these you know they can interview somebody very easily i mean instead of carrying along a, a big video camera on their shoulder they can interview their grandmother with a you know with a phone i mean it's easy and so have them do that and, and uh encourage them to uh pay attention to the elders another thing i i, I stress with them of lately is how when they're young, if they have their grandparents tell them stories and they remember those stories, when they get older and their grandparents are older and the grandparents start maybe forgetting their names or losing their memory a little bit, they could help by telling their grandparents some of the stories that they remember. 
and maybe their grandparents would say, oh, I remember that story. You know what else happened that day? And, and so I, I try to stress to the, to the young children that they have a stake in, their, in the health of their grandparents and the elders around them because they can say, Grandpa, remember you took me here? And, there? and Grandpa will say, oh, yeah, that day was great, and, and help them regain that memory. And so this way it empowers the, the children to realize, hey, I can do something about grandpa's health. I can do something about grandma's, you know, forgetfulness. And uh, give them something to uh, responsibility. There's a, there's a podcast by NPR <clears throat> called StoryCorps. Mm -hmm. they, it's, it's very much that where these kids or grandkids will say, hey, you know, grandpa, tell me about that um, story from 1963 that you told me about when I was a kid about when you went down the street and picked up the Christmas tree or whatever it is, you know, and, and they yeah. would sit there in this booth and now there's an actual app or a website that people can yeah, download the, to the use. Guy who yeah. created it created yeah. an app so that people yeah. could uh, contribute to a global contribute. database of yeah. stories that are being collected. Yeah, I know about that. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a great idea. Now, a quick question then. Do you... Right or wrong, do you think that your background or your appearance has an effect or can create a preconceived notion with an audience? Um, yes, I think so. I, I think, uh, you know, stereotypes um, abound. People, uh, especially in communities that aren't diverse, where, um, you know, the only uh, time a child sees a person of color is on TV, um, maybe being arrested or something else. Um, so it, it, if they haven't uh, been exposed to um, diversity and then they're in a, a community that isn't exposed to diversity and their parents are, uh, you know, on into taking them somewhere so they can get a, a wider look at the world, they're going to form stereotypes because of the news, the media, uh, the books, and, and the schools and their settings. So uh, when I go into a school, I know that uh, I might be the first time um, uh, a person of color has been maybe in that school or addressing these children. Um, hopefully I'm not, but in, in some cases I am. Uh, and so I know my words are going to stay with these kids and my appearance is going to stay with them and my, my actions are going to stay with them. So I think, you know, it's important. Someone said, uh, a woman told me that whenever, when she was young and she was, whenever she was going somewhere, some, you know, I'm going to, Hey dad, I'm going to California. I'm going here. Her father would say, I don't think anybody from my family has been there before. So that, that w which meant was be a good example. You know, you're representing us. And so, you know, I feel when I'm someplace, I'm representing. Yeah. Is, is, is that a... Important. Sorry. I was, I was just going to say if that adds an extra pressure or um, focus for the communicator or storyteller, if, if they have to sort of, I don't want to say overcome well, it. But. Uh, no, it's, it's, not, it's not any pressure. I don't feel pressure. I, you know... Uh, I always want to put my best foot forward no matter where I am because I wouldn't want to embarrass my parents. <laughs> um, and so, or myself. So, uh, 
I'm I kind of keep my uh, my um, my parents and my family in mind when I'm out and about and who I'm representing representing I, I was just gonna say you know my parents and I was raised to have a diverse set of like influences mm. when I was growing up which I found out was uncommon I mean, yeah. as a kid I was like in, in the whitest part of New Hampshire I was like doesn't everybody have like cool people from all over the world like hang out at their house and they're like no and then when I was in high school see kids never got raced started doing the racist jokes and all that kind of stuff until middle school and high school and I'd get really upset because uh, you know, they were talking about my cousins from the Cayman Island, or they were talking about friends of mine. And, um, you know, we had gay uncles, and we had African American, Indian, and Japanese, and all these people. And I used to get really angry. Mm -hmm. And I'd get mad and I'd leave the room. And then, like, I don't know, I started to become more friends with people in those, those situations. And I always used to ask people, how many. Black, they would say stuff about black people. I'd say, how many black people have you met in your life? And they'd say, four. And I'm like, you're judging a whole like race of people on four people you've met. And they never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, all right, um, I think we're going to get make some headway here. I think that this is something because what you're saying resonates with me a lot. Like, yeah. You, you do almost have to be uh, conscious of what you're communicating mm -hmm. um, and, and how you appear and what you're saying because those things actually, it could be, and I, and I know because my art, one of my fellow art teachers told it to me. I was like, well, when are they gonna master art? I was teaching art at high school. She goes, she looked at me once and it diffused my entire pedagogy. She goes, this might be the last art class they ever take in their entire lives. Actually, in all probability, mm -hmm. their high school art class is the last art class they'll, they'll ever take. Yeah. Because it's no longer enforced after, you know, mm -hmm. even fifth grade, really. And, yeah. And all of a sudden I realized, like, my job wasn't to give them mastery of art. My job was to make them love art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a different responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm good. Yeah, I, th I think I've, I've, I think we, we, we tackled a lot. So yeah, yeah. We, we did a long interview. It was an awesome interview. Hopefully, we got some for the ethics podcast too. Uh, I could probably try to fit some of that in there. Absolutely. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I just Great. thought it was interesting stuff. All right, I'm gonna save this. Yeah, I'm gonna stop the broadcast. Len, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure meeting you, and I hope we uh, do it again sometime. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurick. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book Series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is, GradX made, is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, about, find GradX, out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.org.
www.mit.edu. For more information, for more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.